0: Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Kelly Coyne, and Eric Knudsen. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. Our guest this week is veterinarian Dr. Tracy McFarland, founder of The Cat Doctor and Friends, a cat-only veterinary practice in Santa Clarita, California. Dr. Tracy is our veterinarian. Even though Santa Clarita is a bit of a haul from Los Angeles, we commute to see her because she's that good. And we're thrilled to have her with us this week to talk about cat health and cat behavior.
1: Welcome, Dr. Tracy, to the Root Simple Podcast.
0: Yes, welcome. Very happy to be here. Dr. Tracy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice, especially how did you become a cat specialist?
2: Okay. First of all, I don't use the word cat specialist because actually I'm a general practitioner who has chosen to limit my practice to cats. Um, Certainly I do feel like I know a lot about kitties because I've been doing it for a long time, but technically I can't call myself a specialist. Uh Um, that, That term is actually limited to folks who have gone through board certification. But, having said all that, I have been a veterinarian for almost 31 years. I graduated from UC Davis in 1984, back in the Dark Ages, and uh, I worked in companion animal practice for about 10 years, doing cats, dogs, guinea pigs, even the occasional snake. And then, about almost 21 years ago now, I was standing at the door of an exam room And I was about to grab the chart out of the pocket on the door, and I found myself thinking to myself, oh, I hope it's a cat. (laughs) (laughs) And that was my aha moment. I went, oh, wow, I really love cats. I mean, I always knew that I did. And I found that in any practice I worked, I usually saw a lot more cats than dogs. Pretty much all the cat people in the practice would gravitate to me. And I just really enjoy people who love cats, and I love cats. They're just so interesting. They're just never boring to me.
1: I assume you have dogs too?
2: Um, I have had dogs. I don't currently have one. Um, I have four cats at home right now. Um, We lost our Labrador in uh, the spring and haven't gotten another dog just yet. It's funny. For many years, I didn't have a dog And when I was still working with dogs, I guess I didn't really feel the need to have one at home. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to all cats all the time, then for some reason we had to have a dog at home. So it's not that I don't love dogs. I love dogs. It's just that cats' behavioral, medical, dental problems just endlessly intrigue me. Okay. So let's start with, with veterinary practice. How often
0: should a cat see the vet?
2: It depends on their age. Um, kittens should see the vet several times in their first year so that they can get their complete series of vaccines and we can make sure they're growing and healthy. And then they should be examined at about a year of age and then every year after that, in my opinion. I get very concerned in, with the trend I'm seeing where I'll see the kittens I'll see them maybe at a year, and then I might not see them again for several years, especially if they're indoor cats. And by the time I see them again, they have some kind of very significant problem.
1: Why do you think it is that people will take their dog in but don't want to take their cat in every year? I mean, I have to admit that we were a little bit like that, too, because we used to have a dog, and I just assumed he had to go in every year. But as soon as we got these feral cats that we took in, I... I know for some reason I thought, well, we don't really need to take them in every year. Why why, why do you think people think that way?
2: It's a very common misconception, and I think it is combined, several factors are combined to make this problem. And it's something that we've actually, as a veterinary profession, have been looking at because we're very concerned for these cats who aren't getting the wellness care they need. Things that we think are contributing is, number one, cats don't like to go to the veterinarian. (laughs) They don't want to go in the carrier. They don't want to go in the car. They don't want to go to the veterinarian. Where a dog, you wave the leash and yay, we're going somewhere. And it's just a lot easier to take a dog to the vet than sometimes to take a cat to the vet. Second of all, cats, especially ones that are strictly indoors, are not going to be exposed to parasites or wounds or things like that for the most part. So people think they're going to be okay. They're not going to get an infectious disease. However, The problem is we're missing things like dental problems, obesity problems, uh, musculoskeletal problems, diabetes, because they're not getting that wellness care. Now, cats are really good at hiding
0: pain and distress, right? So that's one thing that you can't just wait to see
2: if your cat looks like it's having a hard time. That is so true. Cats are absolutely brilliant at hiding their problems. I, I think if there's one word, one phrase that should be on my tombstone, it would be cats are sneaky. <laughs> cats are incredibly sneaky. They hide their problems the very best they can, probably because in the wild, if you showed your vulnerability, it made you a bigger target. So kitties hide their problems as best they can. And you'd be amazed how arthritic a cat can be and an owner won't be aware. A cat can actually not even have vision. They can literally be blind and have an owner not be aware.
1: Now, are there other things that make them different too? I mean, we're all mammals, we people, we dogs, we cats, but are there things that make cats different from a a medical perspective?
2: Yes, actually, I sometimes think they come from another planet. (laughs) They really are unique in many ways. They have very unique dental problems. A lot of their dental uh, disease hides underneath the gum line, which is why taking intraoral x-rays is so important in uh, cat dentistry. Um, They have bizarre problems with eosinophils, which is a certain kind of white blood cell that can cause weird skin lesions. Um, they have some problems that where they're really the only animal besides us that do it. For example, women can have interstitial cystitis where they'll have painful urination. Well, cats can too. Hmm. Uh, people tend to be often type 2 diabetics and that's the most common kind of diabetic in a cat as well. In fact, cats make excellent models for human diabetics. Hmm. So they're, they're really a, a very unique species. Um, They're also the one species that I can think of where if, God forbid, they're abandoned and they are outside, they can often find a way to feed themselves where I think a lot of dogs would not be able to. I'm certainly not recommending anybody abandon their cat. I'm just saying they can revert to a more feral state more easily than a lot of other pet uh, animals that I can think of. Can
0: I go back and ask you a little bit more about dentist, well, uh, cat dental care? Because I think that's something that people don't think about a lot, particularly when their cat's looking fine. It's an indoor cat and doesn't seem to be having any trouble. But I've learned from you that they can have hidden problems in their mouth because, you know, whoever looks in a cat's mouth, right? who would dare? Well, I do. <laughs> you do. You're a professional. I <laughs> so what kinds of things go on in cat mouths that we should be concerned about as, as cat people?
2: The things that an owner would see that would tell them that there may be a problem would be bad breath, drooling, and dropped or broken food around the food dish, especially Mm -hmm. if they eat dry food. So if suddenly you're seeing a lot of bits of kibble around the food dish, then that might tell you that they're having painful chewing. Swelling um, also would be a clue. Uh, swelling on either side of the face um, or down around the canines would be a clue. If you're able to get a good look, which is not always easy for an owner to do, you may see what we call calculus or tartar uh, building on the teeth. Um, you may see red gums. Hmm. So I guess those are some of the things that I would think that people might be able to see.
1: So how does a cat get bad teeth? Is it, is it related to diet or is it related to genetics?
2: You know, we're not really 100% sure about how all of cat dentistry disease happens. We know that periodontal disease happens pretty similarly to how it happens for humans or dogs where we have bacteria and plaque and periodontal disease can develop. Cats, however, have a very interesting problem called feline resorptive lesions. That's the latest name for it. We don't truly know what causes it. A lot of research is going on because it's so common in cats where the enamel becomes eaten off of the tooth. It's not a true cavity the way we think about that in human dentistry, but the enamel goes away, then leaving the pulp exposed, and now you have a painful tooth that eventually will break off. The roots, meanwhile, are resorbing. This particular disease is the biggest reason that it's so important to get those dental x-rays when a cat is having um, dental work done. We don't truly know what's causing it. There have been all kinds of theories, Khaleesi virus, uh, uh, Bartonella, um, nobody's really 100% sure what's causing it.
1: So, it's a bit of a mystery.
2: It's a mystery and an ongoing research topic. A lot of people would like to know, and just about every cat doctor would like to know, is there any way to prevent this? Because right now, all we can do is, as we identify these teeth, is usually either we extract the tooth if the roots are still present, or we do what's called a crown amputation if the roots are not. So, because unfortunately, if we leave the tooth the way it is, it's painful. Mm-hmm. People have asked me, well, what happens to a cat who doesn't get dental care and that's allowed to go on? Well, unfortunately, what happens is it's painful until the tooth finally breaks off and the gum heals over it. Hmm. But that can take months.
0: Is there any kind of uh, food supplement that you can give your cats to keep their teeth generally, you know you know what I'm talking about, like with dogs. Uh, oh, we'll, treats. We'll dental, give them like treats. dental treats and what, so they can yeah. work the
2: plaque off their teeth. Is there any equivalent for cats that's good for them? Um, Hills makes a nice product called TD. It's actually supposed to be a dental diet, but I don't use it that way. Um, I just uh, have people get the smallest bag and uh, give a few of the kibbles a day as a dental treat. Um, Greenies makes a nice dental treat as well. The other option, and one I really like a lot, is to use something that you can add to their water. Um, there's several products on the market. Um, Oxyfresh Oral Hygiene Solution is one, and you just add a small amount to a quart of water, and then use that to fill your cat's water bowl. And it basically helps cut down on the plaque and uh, bacteria that cause gingivitis and periodontal disease. We are not aware of anything right now that is preventing the feline resorptive lesions. Mm. Well, let's go
0: back to vaccines. You'd mentioned them earlier, how important those were. When when do kittens need their first vaccinations?
2: I like to get that first vaccine in at six to eight weeks, and then I'd like to vaccinate every three to four weeks until they're at least 16 weeks old. It's really important to get that last vaccine in at, at or after 16 weeks because research has shown that a small percentage of kitties will not have permanent protection if their last vaccine is at 12 weeks. We have a phenomenon known as maternal antibodies, the antibodies that are passed to the kittens in the mother's milk. And what is a little bit um, difficult is that some cats will lose their maternal antibodies at 10 or 12 weeks But other cats will retain their maternal antibodies until almost 16 weeks. And the problem with that is it interferes with the ability of the kitten's immune system to respond to the vaccine. Mm. So that's why we have to give vaccines every three to four weeks until they're at least 16 weeks of age. And then
0: after that, I think a lot of us, once, once we get past the kitten, kitten shot stage, then once they're adults, I think we slack a bit on boosters. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, just if, a little. Particularly if they're yeah, indoor cats. Little.
1: They're indoor cats, um, right?
0: Yeah, like they, yeah. When they're indoor cats, you're like, well, what do they need them for?
2: Yeah. I think it's really important that you have a conversation with your veterinarian every year during your cat's wellness exam about exactly what vaccines are needed and which ones are not. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all situation. I think that your veterinarian should be looking at your cat's relative risk and looking at the risks and benefits of the different vaccines. Every vaccine does carry a small amount of risk with it. So that being the case, as responsible veterinarians, we want to say, okay, your cat is a strictly indoor cat. Uh, No small children come to visit. Um, The law in your community says they must have a rabies vaccine. Okay, so we'll do that. And then basically an FVRCP, which is the one that covers upper respiratories and panleukopenia. And that needs to be done every three years in the average adult cat who's been well vaccinated as a kitten. You do the kitten vaccines, boost it one year, and then every three years after that.
1: Now, you mentioned small children there. Is that because small children are bringing in... I hate. To oh, no, was
0: it was cuz the cats will bite the small children. Oh, is that it's what
2: it is? It, it's 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 really more of a a legal situation.
1: Oh, wow. I see.
0: Oh, so like if if your cat bites the child, you need to be able to prove that the cat is vaccinated, right? Exactly.
2: I mean, I honestly personally believe that every cat should be vaccinated for rabies unless they have absolutely no risk whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh in Santa Clarita where I live, we have a pretty big bat population. And quite a few of those bats have been identified to have rabies. So in my opinion, every cat in Santa Clarita should have a current rabies vaccine. I realize in other parts of the city that are more urban, that that may be less of a concern. And then I would simply say, follow the law. Mm -hmm. And uh, your local veterinarian should know what the law is. Um, but I think if small children or immunocompromised people, or if you just have a cat who's on the aggressive side and tends to be a little nippy, I would make sure that cat was current because some doctors are going to ask, if you come in with a cat bite, they are going to ask, they are supposed to, by law, ask if that cat has had rabies vaccines and are they current
0: and could a cat who is outside pick up rabies from, like, say, maybe getting into a scrap with a critter like a, a, a raccoon or a skunk or possum? Yes.
2: If a cat goes outdoors, they must be vaccinated for rabies. Mm-hmm. Uh, raccoons, skunks, possums, um, about the only mammals that I know of that don't carry rabies are actually mice and rats.
1: Now, of course, vaccines right now are very much in the news. We do not <laughs> I guess we're not taking our cats to Disneyland, but... Um, <laughs> Have, you've obviously seen a lot of cats in your career. Have you seen many adverse reactions? And obviously you're you're a believer in vaccines.
2: I am. But again, I, I like to really look at each cat as an individual and say, okay, you need this vaccine, but you don't need that vaccine. But I have seen adverse reactions. The vast majority are very, very, very mild. Usually you're talking maybe a kitty who's a little achy for a day, a little quiet, maybe doesn't eat quite as much as usual. I have seen um, a small percentage of kitties who are what we call vaccine reactors who will vomit. And usually, what we'll do with those kitties is pre medicate them with um, some uh, Benadryl before we uh, vaccinate. We'll only vaccinate one vaccine at a time. And we will really, we may even in some of these cats avoid vaccines and do titers. Vaccine titers are a blood test that a veterinarian can do, and we can look at those titers and assess whether the cat is still well protected and perhaps can avoid another vaccine.
1: Well, actually, this leads into another can of worms I'm going to open here. We lots of lots of controversial topics with cats, and that is, of course, maybe the biggest controversy is indoor versus outdoor cats.
2: Actually, uh, there's one more thing I'd oh, like yeah, to let's say about uh, that. Yeah, let's go back because actually, there's one more thing I should say about vaccines. Mm-hmm. Twice in my career of over 30 years, I have vaccinated a cat and had them immediately die of a fatal anaphylactic reaction. This has happened exactly twice. I have vaccinated thousands and thousands of cats, but it is something that we veterinarians know can happen, and it's something that probably every pet owner should know as well, but it is extremely rare. And thank God for that.
1: But it's a risk-reward. I,
2: I would not stop vaccinating cats right. because of it.
1: It's a risk-reward thing, obviously, because yes. you've saved many more cats well, by vaccinating like, them. I think sometimes people it's, it's difficult for people to get their head around that. Because you get
0: obsessed with that like outlying, dramatic thing. But, but you know right. what is it like for a cat who gets rabies?
2: Well, they're, they're going to die. So it's, it's 100% fatal? It's 100% fatal. Plus, they have put the people around them and any other animals at risk. I personally have the goal of completing my veterinary career without ever seeing a rabies case that I could have prevented. Hmm. That is probably my biggest goal of all. I've also seen a fair number of kittens with panleukopenia. It is an absolutely horrific disease. It's I call it the Ebola of cats. Oh. It is just hideous. I am able to save some of them, but they go through absolute hell. It's horrible. And what, and it's is, so what is that mis- actually? Bent. Panleukopenia is a viral disease. It's epidemic in any area where cats are not being vaccinated. I saw, I went to Ireland uh, to visit some relatives, and veterinary medicine at that time was um, rather backwards, and most people were not vaccinating their cats. And whole kitten litters were just decimated. It's a disease where within anywhere from, say, three to 10 days of exposure, they lose almost all of their white blood cells and they lose the lining of their intestine. Oh. And so it starts with uh, a high fever, not eating, progresses to horrible vomiting and then horrible bloody diarrhea and then death. And then there's even a peracute form where they just get exposed, get sick and die within 24 hours. Um, The only way I've been able to save them is with blood transfusions, aggressive antibiotics, and just really intense critical care. And then some of them are left with uh, lifelong disability. So it's a horrible disease, much better to prevent than to cure.
0: In general, I guess that's good advice is to prevent rather than cure. I mean, you know most of us are not flush with extra money and you know especially in many of us have maybe a few too many cats <laughs> and, yeah. and you know those sorts of health crises are very expensive
2: they are. And, to, you know, if you treat can- a, uh, a pan kitten is going to cost thousands of dollars. I mean, there are times, obviously, that I've done it for a few hundred, you know, just because I wanted to save the kitten. Mm-hmm. You know, you never want to lose a kitten that you didn't have to. Right. But it can be very, very expensive. And it, it's it's more, to me, it's the cost to the kitten. Yeah, because exactly. those, you know, those few days, that week that they're fighting for their life, they are miserable. You know, you can give them all the pain medicine in the world, and it's still just really horrific for them. They are very, very, very sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just—it's something you want to prevent. And the panleukopenia vaccine is one of the most effective, safe vaccines on the planet. A lot of folks do think that their indoor cats don't need vaccines against panleukopenia um, and upper respiratories because they—the cats don't go outside. However. Panleukopenia virus is extremely hardy. It can live for months in the environment, and it is very easy for you to bring it home on the soles of your shoes. So I would hmm. never say that a cat was completely protected against panleukopenia just because they were strictly indoors.
1: Let me let me now open a, the can of worms that uh, mm-hmm. needs to be opened, which is the indoor versus outdoor debate. Now, where do you stand on that?
2: Oh, there are so many factors involved in this particular question. First of all, it depends, I think, a little bit on where you live. I live in Santa Clarita. Santa Clarita is a place where there are not a lot of neighborhoods where outdoor cats tend to live very long. Most of the uh, neighborhoods tend to back on to canyons and washes, and coyotes are out there, and they just love a good kitty. We also have problems with cars, and disease, and it's just it's it's a tough life. Uh, cats enjoy going outside; they're naturally curious. So some people feel that it's unfair to a cat to keep them as an indoor cat, and there are some concerns within the veterinary community in terms of making sure that if your cat is indoor, that you are providing some environmental enrichment such as cat trees and window perches and games and things to keep them interested and enjoying their life. I think that if a cat has never been outdoors, then they don't tend to miss it. I think it's a little harder for a cat who has had free reign outside to adjust to being an indoor cat, although some of them really do. Outdoor life, obviously they are less likely to be overweight, but unfortunately, like I said, they're less likely to live to be old.
1: And it seems like a preventative thing too. I'm sure you treat a lot of injured cats that have gotten into not just scrapes with wild animals but scrapes with other cats too, right.
2: We do see our fair share of cat bites, um, uh, cellulitis, abscesses, um, obviously the occasional hit by car. I don't seem I don't see a lot of cats hit by car the way I did when I was seeing dogs. I think they're a little smarter about it. Uh, the other concern, of course, with the outdoor cats, and this is a big can of worms, is songbird populations. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think people are too upset about cats going out and eating rodents, but I think they get pretty upset when they kill songbirds.
1: Now, what are the things, you mentioned cat trees and things like that, or what are some of the things that, that we can do to make our cats, indoor cats' lives more exciting?
2: There is a wonderful website on the Ohio State university vet schools website regarding environmental enrichment and um, those who are really interested should definitely check it out things i would say is it's kind of interesting sometimes to get down on the floor and look at your house from the cat's point of view and think about trying to have they love vertical space perches are important to them If you have the room for cat trees, great. If you don't, just putting a couple shelves on the wall, a few shelves with some carpet on it so that they can get up high and look around. um, is pretty fun for a cat. Uh, Tunnels are nice for cats, and they really love places they can hide. Paper bags, uh, as long as you cut the handles off, are a lot of fun for cats. Um, I'm always amazed by how much fun they can have with the uh, little... uh, that comes off of a milk jug. I
1: mean,
2: <laughs> <laughs> they also love, of course, ping pong balls and um, wadded aluminum foil. You do have to be a little careful about some toys. One of the toys that I particularly caution people against is the little fur covered mouse with the little leather tail that you mm-hmm. can buy. They're plastic I, on the inside and like the, uh, like yep. rabbit fur or something on the outside? Exactly. I have removed the plastic inside out of innumerable cats
1: mm-hmm.
2: because it gets to their intestine and then it can't pass. Similarly, are rubber bands dangerous? Most kitties
0: seem to handle those okay. Ours love them. They seek them out and they seem so ecstatic when they find one. I don't know what it is about the smell of them or something, but I, I've always wondered if it got, if they swallowed it, would it? Tangle up inside, or usually not. Okay. Usually, they'll
2: either throw it up or pass it through. Okay. Uh, obviously, string um, and thread can be a problem because it can trap around the base of their tongue, oh. and that it, it is a big problem that has to be surgically addressed. Mm-hmm.
1: Is there anything else? I mean, this is one of the differences between dogs and cats. I always think it was dogs just will eat indiscriminately strange things, <laughs> but cats seem to be a little more wary of that. But are there, I mean, those are a couple of things you mentioned. Are there other things you've removed from cat stomachs in the past?
2: I have removed underwear. I have removed thongs. Uh, I, I have removed the uh, rubber sandals and the things, toe separators from pedicures. Um, I have removed, I removed a chunk of carrot from one cat that mm. had obstructed. Their intestinal diameter in the small intestine is not very big.
0: Mm.
2: So that being the case, it's not that hard to obstruct a cat. Now, fortunately, most of them are smarter than dogs. I mean, I think most of us know that. <laughs> and so they do tend to be more discriminate. But there's a small percentage of cats who exhibit what we call pica, which means they seek out and eat non-food items and I have a theory which I cannot prove that some of these kitties probably have a uh, inflammatory bowel condition that is causing them to want to find something to help them throw up Mm. and as a result they will get into trouble eating things that they cannot keep down
1: is that a problem with plants in in a for outdoor cats them finding plants that are toxic is that something you've you've encountered
2: oh absolutely and indoor cats too Mm -hmm. um Valentine's Day is always a bit of a nightmare in Easter, too, because of lilies. Lilies are highly toxic to oh. cats. Even just a couple bites out of a leaf can kill a cat. So.
1: And they find it desirable. They, they seek it out? Is that it? Or are they just playing with it?
2: I think that for the most part, they're not really seeking out lilies. But if they're there and they're curious, they might. You know, take a bite just to see if it tastes good. So our cats
0: have to sample any kind of green matter that comes through our house, so I could imagine that happening.
1: Now, speaking of eating things, oh yeah, now, we here's need to move on to can the of big, worms, big which is, topic, which is diet. Um, it's we we have uh, cats for the first time actually three years ago, and that was a big question mark. Yeah, like for trying, us, to what, trying, to trying to figure out what to feed them, like feed balancing
0: them. their well being with our budget. It was tough. And so we read a lot of stuff on the internet and got thoroughly confused. (laughs) And and we had a lot of reader questions too, uh, just about, you know, is raw actually good? You know, should the food be up or down? There's many, I think we have a lot to tackle here.
2: So uh, what do you recommend we feed our cats? Oh boy. (laughs) Yes. This is a very, very interesting and controversial topic. And I've been a veterinarian long enough to see the pendulum swing back and forth because there's several factors to consider, which is why I don't really have a one-size-fits-all recommendation. I think it's going to vary a lot from cat to cat, which is another reason that those annual wellness exams are such a good idea, because your veterinarian can assess your cat's physical condition and talk about uh, concerns regarding their teeth or obesity, and diet plays a big role in both of those. For the cat who has a lot of dental problems, I'm probably going to veer more toward a dry diet to try and avoid uh, building up more periodontal disease. For the cat who has a lot of problems tending toward obesity, I'm probably going to veer more toward a canned diet to try and avoid diabetes. I'm going to encourage the owner to buy the best quality food they can. And if money is a big problem, I would probably go more toward dried because it's a little less expensive to buy a good quality dry diet than to feed a cat a good quality canned diet when you're paying for water. And uh, you- oh, oh, I was gonna oh say- and I haven't even gone to raw, oh, raw. yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've got
0: to cover raw. But just when you're choosing your your kibble – is it important to avoid grain in the kibble or is that overemphasized? I, yeah.
2: I think that the whole grain thing, its to me, it's very analogous to the whole gluten-free thing. It's its become kind of a fad. Mm. There are a small percentage of cats who really can't handle corn or wheat. I've really never seen a cat who couldn't handle rice. So I don't know that people really need to go grain-free. I do see a certain percentage of my patients that I think benefit from avoiding corn especially corn gluten.
0: Okay, so but then there's the extreme of that is is raw, all meat raw diets. And
1: wasn't there actually at one of the big veterinary conventions, I know a few years ago there was a huge controversy over raw food, whether it was a good thing to use or not. Where do you stand on that?
2: Raw diets concern me because of the public health implications as well as the concerns for my patients. Because of the way chicken is produced in this country, a lot of it being in very tough conditions for the chickens, they tend to shed a lot of salmonella and E. coli. And that's not a big concern for us humans because we don't eat raw chicken. When we take raw chicken from the supermarket and bring it home and don't cook it and chop it up and give it to our cats or dogs, we are exposing our household to E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And these are all diseases that can make both the cat and the human very sick. I know that people argue that cats were designed to eat raw, and they were. They were designed to eat raw rodents or raw birds that are out in the wild and are not left kept in difficult conditions where they're all crowded together and fed abnormal diets. So... The fact of a cat going out and eating a raw mouse is very different than a cat eating raw supermarket chicken.
1: It seems to me uh, another thing is that often that food is ground as it is when it's sold as as cat food, you know, raw cat food. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me there's a big difference between a rat and then something that's ground, because then when you're grinding it, you're taking the uh, pathogens from the outside of the animal, incorporating them in the inside, where then they they kind of germinate at a higher level. I mean, that, that was my food safety concern.
2: Mine as well. Um, it's just very uncomfortable to me. The same with uh, turkey, maybe not quite as big a concern, but a pretty darn big concern. And with beef. So... If someone is determined to feed their cat raw, I will usually refer them to a nutritionist, a veterinary nutritionist, to see if there's a way they can do it safely. And there do exist veterinary nutritional specialists who can give you very good information and they're pretty affordable to consult with. And it can be done online, over the phone. So it's a really good resource that I wish more people would look at. There's also a great website, Balance It. Dot com. And I definitely refer people to that all the time. And that I know is manned by a veterinary nutritionist.
1: One concern that I have with our own cats is we have three. And of course, some cats are finicky about what they eat. Others are not.
0: Some are gobblers and some are pickers.
1: <laughs> and balancing the needs of three cats and one of whom is tending towards the obese. I mean, it seems like a very <laughs> kind of a, a tricky, tricky sort of problem. And we've ended up using the same canned food over and over. and I always wonder, is is that a problem? Should, oh, should a cats yeah, should a cat's diet be varied?
2: Uh, my own cats eat the same thing pretty much every day of their lives. Um, I tend to, if you find a food that works well for your cat, I tend to stick with it. I would prefer to use a food that comes from a company that doesn't tend to mess with their formula, which means I tend toward the higher end foods um, from the folks like Royal Canin or Hills or Natural Balance, where they have good research to back up the fact that their foods are completely nutritionally complete. I prefer foods where they have been fed to colonies of cats and have been verified. Um, It's called an AFCO feeding trial. And it's something, if you see that on the food that you're thinking about buying, that is a very good thing to see. As far as talking about how do we deal with the household where we have the, the chubby cats and the skinny cats, how do we deal with that? That's always tough.
1: Well, first, let's back up for a second. How do you know if your cat is overweight?
2: There's a great question. Um, it's actually relatively easy to tell. You should be able to feel your cat's spine, feel your cat's ribs, And be able to see a waist when you look down on your cat. And you shouldn't be able to see necessarily the knobs of your cat's spine. That would be too thin. But you should be at least able to feel the very tops of the the spine. And you should be able, if you dig a little bit, to be able to feel the cat's ribs. And if you have a hard time feeling your cat's spine ribs and you can't see any kind of waist when you look from above, then your cat is probably overweight.
0: What about the little fat pad that's on their bellies that swings back and forth?
2: When <laughs> I, I call that the lion pouch. And I actually think that's relatively normal. Okay. It should not be filled with fat, however. Mm.
0: Okay. So you can actually feel if you feel like kind of a ball of fat in
2: there, you're like... You
0: then know, yeah, that's that their little their, belly
2: roll. That's their and pot belly. Just like on a person, if you've got a belly roll, then you're probably carrying more weight than you should.
0: Now... Um, this might fold in in terms of limiting food for the chubby kitties. Is it better to feed the cats, like put the food down and then take it up in a few minutes or you know, to, to keep them from constant grazing or from stealing each other's food?
2: In a perfect world, we would meal feed cats. And the thing that's nice in a multiple cat household when you do meal feeding is that if somebody's not eating, you're going to know right away.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: When you leave food out all the time, then you might not know for a few days that a particular cat isn't eating. So meal feeding is great in that we're going to know that everybody's eating. We're going to see them eat. We're going to see if they're having any difficulty eating. And I would say you put the food out for about a half an hour to 45 minutes, twice a day or three times a day, depending on whether you're home or not. And they, eat, they learn quickly enough, okay, this is when I'm supposed to eat. There are certainly cats who are self-regulators who can have dry food out all the time and they don't overeat. And that's wonderful if you have a household where that's the case. But unfortunately, quite often, like in your household, you have (laughs) one kitty who can't quite self-regulate and has to keep eating. Mm -hmm. Which means he eats everybody else's food. Right. There are actually some interesting contraptions that have been invented to try and deal with this, where they will have a a big plexiglass box with a uh, magnet controlled entry so that the one kitty that you want to be able to eat anytime they want can go into the box and eat and the (laughs) others cannot modern technology helping us all (laughs) <laughs> it's obviously a big problem yeah. or else yeah. somebody would not have invented that. I'm sure it's
0: a problem with dogs as well, eating, like, you know, if you trying to keep kibble out, of course, nothing's more tasty to a dog than cat kibble. Um, oh, yeah. So you would just be, all your money would be going
2: down your dog's cullet, So plus, plus cat food being a little bit different than dog food, mm-hmm. it's pretty rich and often could create some nice GI problems for oh, you nice as well. Um, I would usually, if I have a dog, use a doggy gate or put the do- cat food up on a counter so that the dog can't get at it. And the cat would probably appreciate that too. <laughs> yes. I think the cats deserve the right to not be pestered while they're eating. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, how, mu- how How do you know how much to feed a cat? That was another puzzle to me.
2: Uh, that's something that's determined in concert with your veterinarian because it's uh, change you know varies from cat to cat just like with people. Some people can eat more and never gain an ounce and other people seem like they're not eating that much and they have a weight problem. So it's, it's simply a matter of calories coming in versus calories expended and different cats have different metabolisms. Um, in terms of how I figure it out there are actually formulas that veterinarians have that we can use um, but I will tell you that for the average reasonably, sedentary cat who's about 10 pounds who's on dry food only Uh, if it's a good quality food i'm probably going to feed about a third of a cup a day so that is a very very basic idea but some cats will need more some cats will need less you know obviously if canned foods in the mix then you'd use even less dry people are often very surprised by how little dry food their cat should actually be eating if they're eating dry food
1: and again, you, you said that you like dry food for cats with dental problems, but otherwise, canned food is better? Is Would it hard on that? their
2: kidneys to have an all-dry diet? I don't know that it is if they're good at hydrating. Mm. Um, and many cats that eat dry food do drink a goodly amount of water because they need to. I don't think it's a bad idea for a cat to have some dry food in their diet unless they have a obesity or diabetic problem. So I... In a perfect world, I actually like to do a little of both. little canned, a little dry.
0: We have just a few more minutes. And I think one thing that a lot of people are curious about, to switch topics, uh, is fleas, uh, flea control.
2: I have been uh, around the block long enough to have seen an absolute change, an amazing change in flea control. When I first came out of school in 1984, we were doing flea shampoos and powders and sprays and bombs and just all kinds of lovely toxic things Mm. to try and kill fleas. I started practice in Sherman Oaks, which is, I think, the flea capital of the world. It's certainly right up there. (laughs) And we would get all these horrible, miserable flea rashes. You know, these poor cats and dogs would be scratching themselves raw because they were allergic to flea bites. And we'd have to have the flea talk. And The first summer as a veterinarian, I think I had that flea talk about a million times. And I'm so happy that it's so much easier now. Because Because of the topical. Yeah, because of the topicals, my favorite being Revolution, but Advantage also works pretty darn well. Um, As long as they're used the way they're supposed to be, these are safe and effective, and they work great. I think where people get into trouble is they'll do it for a few months and then they'll stop. But... For example, if you have a dog and a cat, I would focus on flea control for the dog because they're going outside, so they're a target. If the cat is strictly indoors and you do very good flea control for the dog, you probably don't have to do it for the cat. Mm. If you're not doing flea control for the dog, then the cat is certainly going to be exposed and will need flea control. And really, I can't imagine why you wouldn't do flea control for the dog. If you have strictly indoor cats and you don't have a dog, um, you may not need flea control.
1: What about heartworm?
2: Heartworm is a very interesting um, topic, especially in cat medicine, because a fair number of people aren't aware that cats can get heartworm. It is much more common in dogs. For example, in the south of the United States, if you have a dog and they're not on heartworm preventative and you're in Georgia, say, you have like a 90% chance that that dog will be infected with heartworm within one year. Mm. If you have a cat in Georgia, you have about a 9% chance that the cat will be infected. So cats basically have about 10% of the risk of a dog. So if you're in an area where dogs are not really at risk for heartworm, then cats aren't either, because they are not a natural host. Having said that, when cats get heartworm, it's much more difficult to deal with because their little cat heartworms live in the pulmonary artery and right side of the heart. And since cats' hearts and pulmonary arteries are much smaller than in dogs, they can have a lot more obstruction uh, because of a heartworm. And the inflammation that heartworms cause can cause a lot of problems. And if you try to treat heartworm in cats, you will kill them. So the only way we can deal with cats who have heartworm is to manage the inflammation and keep them alive until the worms die off. So ideally, you prevent rather than try to manage a cat with heartworm.
0: And there's only Inter- the I'm sorry, Actually, there's only the one topical that treats heartworm, or do they all do that?
2: Actually, no, they don't. Revolution treats heart, or prevents heartworm in cats, and uh, I'm sure Revolution in dogs. It prevents it in dogs. Um, heart Guard is another thing that you can use to prevent heartworm in both dogs and cats. Although you always want to be careful to use a cat product for cats and a dog product for dogs.
0: Have you found that there's um, any uh, developing resistance to to some of the flea control uh, solutions? I, I hear. From friends and stuff, just in a casual way, you know, oh, well, Frontline's not working for for me anymore. Now I'm switching to Advantage as if, you know, we're playing this game with the fleas trying to keep them on their toes. Have you seen that in your own practice?
2: I have. Actually, I used to love frontline, and at least here in Santa Clarita, I'm not having good luck with it. And usually, if a cat comes in with fleas and I ask, you know, is your cat on flea preventative, and they say frontline, I do switch them. The fleas, they have their ways. They are, you know, <laughs> they're they adapting. They want to live. Fleas leave. want to live, and so <laughs> they have their ways. So basically, we we want to use a product that is. Um, either a multi-product where it's got several different uh, drugs in it to kill the fleas so that they're less likely to develop a resistance. Uh, For whatever reason, I have not seen that problem with uh, Revolution. And I haven't really seen it. I mean, Advantage still seems to be working pretty well, and it was actually the first. I have to say it works for us still. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, unfortunately, we're getting near the end of our hour here, but we had a bunch of reader questions uh, wow. Some of which we'll be able to get to, but um, you know we'll have to have you back on to answer some more. Beginning with one, a number of people mentioned cats with weepy eyes, and I know we have a friend with this problem too. And actually,
0: sometimes our Phoebe has one of her eyes gets weepy. Uh, what's that about?
2: Sure, um, I can definitely speak to this. All right, if your cat has one weepy eye, and it comes and goes, and it's always the same eye. That is usually due to herpes, feline herpes. Um, It is not communicable to people or dogs. It is something that the virus hides in the facial nerve, and they were usually infected as kittens. And it's not a huge deal. It's just something that you can treat when needed. I usually use just uh, something to moisten the eye because herpes tends to make the eye a little drier. So that's why they'll tend to squint, and you'll see a little bit of tearing. If you have chronic tearing from one side, it usually means that the herpes virus scarred down the nasal lacrimal or tear duct. So in that cat, the tear is going to go down the face since it can no longer go down the tear duct.
0: Now, but if they're weeping in both eyes, that's something different? That's usually
2: something different. If they're weeping in both eyes, I'm going to look more toward allergies. Just like with people, if both your eyes are watery, it's quite often going to be a allergy problem. And allergies in cats are definitely just as important as in dogs. Um, I think a lot of people think cats don't get allergies, and they absolutely do. Uh, They can be allergic to anything from incense, scented candles, scented kitty litter, Mm -hmm. carpet fresheners, uh, pollen, uh, food. Certain foods often trigger allergies in cats. That was one of the reasons that I mentioned that I sometimes want to remove corn gluten from a cat's diet. Mm. because some cats are sensitive to that the uh, biggest food allergens in my experience have been fish and beef
0: um you know i just had a flashback to when ours were kittens and we we rescued ours and they were all kind of sick when we got them and we were putting uh is it called lysine on their food
2: to to help with the eyes supposedly i can tell you why that is and how it works okay L-lysine is an amino acid, so it's not even a drug. You can get it as a pure pharmaceutical-grade powder on the internet. And a quarter teaspoon is 500 milligrams. When you have a cat with herpes, we can't obviously cure herpes because it hides in the facial nerve. And most cats don't show any symptoms because their immune systems keep it under wraps. For the kitty who is troubled by herpes and it comes and it goes, I will often recommend L-lysine mixed with their canned food twice a day at one quarter teaspoon or 500 milligrams. And it works in a beautiful, elegant way. The L-lysine, if you give enough of it, there'll be more of it in the blood. When the herpes virus wants to make a copy of itself, it's supposed to reach for arginine, which is another amino acid. If you have enough L-lysine in your kitty's blood, then the herpes virus will reach often for the L-lysine by mistake, and it will stop the replication of the herpes virus. So that's why we use it.
0: I have one more eye question, Eric, before you jump. You, you know, if their eye does look uncomfortable and you want to maybe help wash it out or moisturize it, is there a home remedy or an OTC, or do we need uh, vet drops to...
2: I certainly would make sure that you had seen your veterinarian at least to start with because sometimes these kitties will have a corneal ulcer and that's really important that that be identified and treated specifically with very specific antibiotics and usually atropine and pain medication. Mm. But if it's something where you know and your vet knows that your kitty is going to have these occasional herpes flare-ups, then I have recommended Genteel Ocular Lubricant um, as something you could pick up at a pharmacy, as a something to just make the eye more comfortable. That's a people... It's a people drug. A people drug. <laughs> okay.
1: I had one last question from our readers. I'm going to hopelessly summarize a number of questions. Oh, gosh. Baha'i, uh, you know, uh, there were behavioral questions, but a lot of them seem to be related to cat social hierarchy, which is a great mystery to me. Dogs, it seems pretty simple to me. There's a head-bought dog and uh, underling dogs, but with cats, it, it's puzzling. It seems and to shift. Yeah, I'm wondering how you approach these sorts of behavior problems in multiple households. That's like a four-hour I know, we might have to have you
2: back just to talk about this. Well, you know, I'm really hoping that we'll make this a regular feature because I'm really enjoying this conversation. And I love talking about cats. I could do it all day long every day. In fact, guess what? I do. (laughs) Um, But in terms of behavioral hierarchies in the cat, they are not as clearly defined as in dogs. Dogs, you really do have alpha dog, beta dog, you know, and so on and so on. I heard a speaker once refer to it as you have one or two CEOs in cats, and then you have a bunch of middle management. (laughs) And I thought that was a really good way to describe it. And it's been very interesting to me talking to some of my clients with multi-multi-cat households and how they've really taught me. And it's been fun learning from them about the importance of a good alpha cat if you have a multi-multi-cat household. Because if you have a benevolent alpha cat who just kind of keeps order and discipline in a very benevolent way, then all he has to do is glare at somebody who's acting up. Everybody plays nice. If you have a less than benevolent alpha cat, it can be pretty stressful. It often, in I have often seen where you have two girl cats that they will kind of split the house or apartment in two. And one of them will be the boss cat in one part of the house, and the other will be the boss cat in the other part of the house, which I find kind of (laughs) very funny and and seems like a really good way to work it out. (laughs) If you have social stress in the household because things aren't as clearly delineated as they need to be, there are things you can do to help. First of all, again, we come back to environmental enrichment. Lots of cat perches, lots of litter boxes, lots of feeding stations. Because that way, if there's one kitty who's maybe a little intimidated by another kitty, they can get what they need without having to spend too much time close to the other kitty. Two other topics I want to mention is first is the pariah cat. The pariah cat, for lack of a better word, is the cat who is very socially awkward. And it's the cat that all the other cats in the household pick on. And these are the cats who probably didn't have much interaction with other cats early on or who might be a bit of an autistic spectrum kind of cat. These are cats who I think probably they haven't mastered appropriate body language with the other cats. So they don't realize what they're doing wrong, but they're offending the other cats with every movement they make. And the other cats punish them for it. And if you have a pariah cat, and I think most people know that there's one cat that the other cats pick on, the kindest thing you can do for that cat is give them their own room and let them live in peace in their own room or with maybe one other cat if there's another cat who they actually can get along with so that they're not constantly being picked on. There is a really interesting over-the-counter supplement called Zilkeen, Z-Y-L-K-E-N-E, that is is a milk protein and providing your cat isn't sensitive to milk protein and very few are, I have found to be really helpful for taking the edge off. If you have some really anxious cats and sometimes you do, if, if things are socially a little, you know, upset in the household.
1: This would be a subject for an entire podcast, I'm sure. But if if there are CEO cats, can they be sent to management school? You know, is there <laughs> how much uh, sort of training will a cat respond to?
2: I'm not sure th- how much can be done. I probably, if I had a a, a a cat who's trying to be the alpha and isn't very good at it, I would probably start them on some Zilkeen and see if we could just get them to chill out. Mm. And certainly you can uh, do some things to discourage overt aggression. You know, if if they're stalking the other cats, then um, you could be uh, carrying a a whistle and blowing the whistle loudly when they are stalking or crashing pots together. You know, loud noises are very aversive to cats. They don't like it. Um, Ideally, you don't ever want to do any kind of corporal or physical punishment to a cat because it doesn't work and... They will really not like it, and they won't like you. And it's just not fair. It's, it's not fair. One of the problems that I would caution against, though, is a certain amount of conflict is going to happen between cats, and we probably shouldn't interfere if no one's getting hurt. They have their favorites and, and, and non-favorites just like everybody else, and I don't think we should anthropomorphize. You know, Sometimes they do things that don't seem fair to us but make perfect sense to them.
1: They seem very different than us in, in many ways, and I'm wondering. This is the last question here. Over your many years of being uh, uh, looking at cats now, and, and and hundreds and hundreds and thousands probably of cat <laughs> patients, how have has your ideas about them changed over the years? Is there anything about them that that you've discovered that's different than when you came in? I guess that's what I'm trying to say.
2: I would say that their social interactions are much more complex than I really appreciated, both with each other and with us. I find it fascinating that as they get older, their language often becomes more complex with us. I feel like they evolve a language with us through trial and error. Mm -hmm. I bet you've noticed that with your own cats, Mm -hmm. that they have certain noises they make when they want you to do certain things. They're always training and, us. <laughs> yeah, I feel like cats train their humans, and that they understand us much better than we will ever understand them.
1: Well, Doctor well, Tracy, I want to thank you for being on the Root oh, Simple thank you. Podcast. It was wonderful, and for your care of our cats as well. Yes,
2: it's been my privilege. I really enjoyed talking with you
0: today, and I hope to do it again. Yeah, we will have you back, and we're going to dig into some of these things in depth. It'll be great. Sounds great.
1: Sorry we couldn't get to all your questions, but we're hoping to have Dr. Tracy on again soon. Stay tuned. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also available on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple Podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening.